Recording in progress. That sounds a little bit different. Uh, in any event, we are uh, back, ladies and gentlemen, with uh, another episode of the Broses and Rhetoric Podcast number 46. Uh, keep yourselves uh, seated in your seatbelt fastened at all times. Joining me, as always, my charming co-host. Joseph Stanford. So we're a little a little pressed for time. Um, we do promise that uh, next week it will be a, a more normal format. Joe and I have had some interesting weeks between the two of us. So uh, the past month has been a little uh, a little hodgepodge, I think you would say, Joe. But I think um, I think next weekend will be will be a, a bit closer to uh, what we're normally doing. Uh, in any event, still a fun episode today. We're going to do things a little bit differently today uh, because we're pressed for time. We have both a movie review and a music review. We're going to hop right into the music review right now then get on to some points of discussion, and then we'll get to our movie review in a little bit. So, Joe, when you're ready, our, another wonderful review from our official R&R musical correspondent. Yeah, and before I start that, yeah, like you said, it's been um, three weeks since uh, the two hosts have been able to share the love that they have with each other. Had a couple since our last confession. Since <laughs> our last confession, a little, uh, a little summer hiatus, but uh, we're back into it full swing. And today we have a music review. This is a good one. The album is Quarters by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Notes. Jams, psychedelic, prog rock, bit of a slow burn. Review. This week's album is Quarters by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. I actually found a physical copy of Quarters last week while shopping for albums. While King Giz released Quarters in 2015, I have personally been searching for a copy since 2017. So finding it was awesome. The joy of digging. If you are unfamiliar with King Gizzard in the Lizard Wizard, the first thing you should know is that they are a six, used to be seven, piece rock band that is rooted in psychedelia. The second thing you should know about King Giz is that their output is absolutely insane. In the last nine years, they released 18 studio albums and nine live albums. Additionally, their sound is incredibly diverse on each album. The King Giz discography ranges from garage rock, acoustic, thrash metal, synth pop, and even soft rock. On quarters, King Giz focuses their sound on laid back psychedelic jams. There are four tracks that are each exactly 10 minutes and 10 seconds in length. Thus, as the title implies, each track is precisely one quarter of the album. With such songs as King Giz is able to set a mood, delve into the melodies, and riff off of each other. Listening to such songs, your mind is going to naturally wander to wherever it desires. The opening track, The River, moseys along in 5-4 and allows you to float freely. While the album verse of The River is good, I highly encourage you to take up the live version as it is absolutely sublime. The second track, Infinite Rise starts out with Shepherd Scale, which gives the auditory illusion of continuous ascent, even though it is the same tone. It then breaks into a simple groove and some wild ambient sounds. Infinite Rose is the illusion of movement as we actually traversed our rutted out routines. The next track, God is in the Rhythm, is a slowed down 50s rock jam that touches on how the seasons of time pass us by. Quarters ends with Lonely Steel Sheet Flyer, which is a mellow trip through the clouds on the wings of hazy guitars. 
I'd recommend listening to quarters when you need to relax or simply get out of the way of your own thoughts. And there you have it. There's our album of the week presented live from Vienna, Austria. What did you think, Jim? I know we just got this album last weekend, or I mean last night or this morning, rather. Right. I Depending on. Yes. I have not had a chance to listen to it yet, but I, I'm sure that I will like it. My, I, uh, I have probably two my my two favorite subgenres of rock and roll that, that I like. One would be glam rock and the other would be psychedelic rock. So I think this one will be right up my alley. So I look forward to uh, forward to listening to it. I, I'm always amazed at the eclectic nature of my of my friend's musical prowess. That was uh, when I when I first found this group of friends in uh, college, I the, the first thing I was aware of is that they knew a lot more about music than I did. And um, that continues to be the case as we uh, explore these reviews with our official R&R correspondent. So I'm looking forward cool. to this one and uh, we'll listen to it soon. Well, yeah. And uh, we're thankful for your Marilyn Manson knowledge that you brought into the group as well. Yes. And uh, yeah, when the next time you need to relax or simply get out of the way of your own thoughts, turn to quarters by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If only for <laughs> I, uh, I, I think that is a that, that is a very fitting review um, for our, our next topic of discussion, getting out of the way of your own thoughts um, as it pertains to uh, discovery and, and, and theory more generally. Um, people that have followed the show for a while know that Joe and I on, on a number of occasions have, have kind of tapped into some neuroscience themes on the show. Um, we have a very close friend who is very much rooted in that world and from time to time uh, sends us uh, things uh, from that world that are interesting for discussing. And uh, he, he sent us one such paper a few weeks ago that we're now finally, finally going to get to. And um, this paper pairs very nicely with some ideas that came up in uh, David Deutsch's The Beginning of Infinity, uh, which is a book that Joe and I just wrapped up a whole you know, what was it, two months talking about that book and probably could have even spent more time on it. And um, another book that we've talked about as well called The Brain from the Inside Out, written by, I think it's Georgie Buzaki. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. I really have no idea how to say that name. I think it's Buzaki. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've been traveling through through Europe, so you probably know how to say these names now. Um, I haven't gotten that far east yet. <laughs> yeah, haven't gotten that far in the world yet. Uh, in the, uh, the, the paper we're looking at today is called Just Looking, the Innocent Eye in Neuroscience. Um, and what this paper looks at, we'll get into some more detail, but just kind of a, a higher view. What this paper argues is that it's, it's basically it's impossible to have observations in science or, or data-driven discoveries in science without pairing it with theory, without, pair, without pairing it with um, either new theories or existing theories about what it is you're looking at. Um, and this is a, a point made by, by David Deutsch in the beginning of Infinity, that all observations are, are theory-laden, that there is no way of just going through the world purely observing data and nothing else. You have to interpret data through some kind of idea, so through some kind of theory in order to arrive at discoveries. Um, what did you think of the paper, Joe? Yeah, it all, it all comes back to conjecture and criticism, right? That's the only way to learn anything. Like data itself is just a bunch of numbers. If there's no one to analyze the data, if there's no one to 
make theories about the data, then you really can't get anywhere. And he talks about that in this paper. And I think a big part of the reason this paper was written is because with a lot of fields, maybe neuroscience especially, it, and I don't know, maybe some people would agree, or maybe some would disagree, but from what I know about it, it seems like neuroscience is kind of hitting a wall in terms of like what they can know about the brain. Like they, they look at it, they map, they map it like topographically, or topographically, like they just look at it spatially and they try to associate different physical regions with different um, functions of the brain. And they're just running that to exhaustion, it seems like. And they're really, neuroscience seems like it needs that next spark to really get them to the next point of understanding. And uh, a big reason that the author of this paper argues that that's not happening is that uh, there's a lot of preconceived notions that people have about things. Um, he says that perception becomes trained through experience and social convention. So what's happening is that there's this 500, you know, or 100 years, 50 years of neuroscience um, inertia that we're carrying with us to this day where um, to make any new discoveries, it's really hard because you have all that momentum being carried through all these preconceived ideas like, oh, this part of the brain does this, this part of the brain does that, et cetera, et cetera. Makes it hard to make new discoveries. Uh, there was one quote in here that I really liked, and it was that the painter's task is to recover the infant's innocent eye. So in other words, um, sometimes a great painting is great because it, it, it can represent an image, represent a picture, represent an idea in the way that an infant would see it, in the way that someone that doesn't have all this preconceived baggage in their eyes or in their minds because when you like today, like if you like look at a chair or something, you say, oh, it's this kind of chair. It's green. It's a sofa. It has cushions, et cetera, et cetera. But like when an infant looks at it, it's just like all new. There's no labels. There's no nothing. It's just being perceived. So I really like that. Um, I liked how he referred to Buskowski again and how, again, Buskowski suggests that a new vocabulary for neural mechanisms is going to be required if we want to make any more progress in neuroscience. Um, and just fundamentally, like humans can't maintain a naive distinction between facts and theory. So if we can't understand facts and theory, the difference between them, um, that's really a shaky foundation for building off of from there. Uh, I did like the analogy he made about the drunkard. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, do, right. do you want to talk about that a little bit? <laughs> no, that was funny. You said that. I, I thought that was a really funny quote uh, or funny parable. I'll, I'll, I'll quote from the paper and then we can talk about it. Uh, so this is known as the, as the drunkard's uh, parable or the, in, in this case, it's known as the, the, the drunkard's search. Um, and the, the story is that a policeman comes across a drunk man searching for his keys under a streetlight. The drunkard admits that he actually lost his keys in the park. So the officer asks, why are you searching here? And the drunkard replies, because this is where the light is. Um, we have a bias for looking for things in places where it's easy to look. We start looking where it's easiest to, to find things. And um, I thought that was really funny because, um, you know, the, 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 the ties into neuroscience is that you know, you would expect really just any, any scientist that they would, they would begin looking for for things that they understand, they would begin with, again, with, with the, the uh, precepts in place. Um, 
And I, I thought that was a really funny, uh, a really funny parable. It does have a Wikipedia page that I had to go and read to make sure I was, I was understanding the parable properly. But I thought that was, I thought that was funny. I thought, I thought it was interesting. His, uh, his, his comment on, on, Bu, on uh, Buzaki in the paper, I think um, in, in uh, Buzaki's book, Brain from the Inside Out, you know, what he, what he kind of argues and like what you're describing is, you know, we take a part of the brain, we map it, we try to assign it some kind of function, and then we go like move on to the next part of the brain and that you know, process repeats itself. And he, I think in the book, he refers to that as like a modern version of phrenology, which is like the junk science of like feeling for lumps on your head and that, you know, somehow it tells you about the person or something. Like the, the shape of the skull. Having yeah, right. Exactly. And so he was kind of saying like, we're kind of doing almost the, the same thing now where we just, you know, we look at a part of the brain and we think, oh, you know, this shape of the brain, you know, is doing this thing. And, you know, it's, it's not very far removed from that. And I like, I like uh, Buzaki's, I, I think his, his main point in the brain from the inside out is that we, we should start with the brain. And I think the quote that the author in this paper gives, you know, is quoting Buzaki in that regard. It's hard for me to determine if, if the author, I, I think the author is more in, in some ways critical of, of Buzaki, but I guess it's hard to make out from the quote that he gives. But in, in any event, I think, I think, I think Buzaki would be firmly rooted in the camp of needing conjecture and criticism to make progress in science. I think we're, what, what he would say is that when we start with psychology as the, as the theory basis, um, it's, it's, it's easy to mislead ourselves and that, you know, maybe we would be better off trying, still having to formulate theories about things or in order, in order to understand data, of course, but that starting with the brain as, as something more fundamental, you know, starting from the brain, you know, and then working out from the brain to the world around us. Um, you know, one of the key points in his book is that the brain is not this passive accumulator of data, but is this, you know, machine constantly putting ideas out into the world and, you know, running experiments, et cetera. And I, I think it's a powerful image of how a brain works. Um, and I, I, I think there are actually many important overlaps between, I think, with what Buzaki is saying and what the author of this paper is saying. I think at the heart of it, what they're getting at is why, um, I don't know that either one of them intend, in, intended this to be what they're writing about, but they, they argue very powerfully for the fact that really you need persons to do science. You need people to right. do science. That is not just data accumulation. That, that, that is not what science is. Um, you know, basically, if if you know, Newton and Einstein both had ideas that agreed with data. And they, and in fact, they probably had a lot of data points that overlapped with each other, but yet completely different ideas for what the data points actually mean, right? I mean, they, the totally different interpretation of what, uh, what the data points mean. So I think that's, uh, that's important. Um, what else was I going to say about this paper? I thought it was really interesting because it was nice to see an idea from David Deutsch brought to life in an important field that it was, you know, that it, in other words, it, it gives credence to the idea that David Deutsch's, you know, ideas, I probably not only his, but probably from other people as well, but that they are, um, they are what they, they are applicable to solving real problems. Oh yeah. They're, they're applicable to everything. And yeah. even, no, hold that thought, run real quick. Give me one second. I want to pause the yeah, recording. Yeah. One second. Recording's uh, in progress. Sorry, everybody, for that. A quick 
a quick detour, but we're back. Joe, anyways, I, I, I got, uh, I got sidetracked. Tell me, the, uh, David, David, which in the beginning of infinity. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So, oh yeah. So I, two things I want to touch on, um, the dyna- the dynamic versus the static society. Yeah. Uh, so since I've been in Austria, I've been reading this book by this Australian author that kind of lived through like world war one, world war two. And he was talking about Austria, like before World War One happened and how it was like the society where like they really favored consistency and like being able to predict exactly how much money you're going to make when you're going to be able to retire, like exactly how things are going to turn out. Like they really favored the arts and whatnot. But it, overall, it was just like a big static society. Like there wasn't they didn't really welcome a lot of innovation. They kind of like frowned upon people that like stood out and like questioned authority and whatnot. And although they did come out with some real great inventors and, and uh, composers like Mozart, Beethoven, Freud, Schrodinger, Mach, like all these guys, uh, overall their society was like pretty, pretty weak politically. And that's why they like got wiped out so quickly during the wars and overtaken. But I think that's evidence of like why the dynamic society is, is needed. Because if you have a dynamic society like Germany had at the time or like the US had at the time, like your odds of survival fare much higher than those around you that just favor the old way of doing things. But that was just another, another example of like how David Deutsch has like infiltrated my life in some way. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was with this analysis of the brain and how, okay, it might not just be a spatial relation between consciousness and uh, the topography of the brain or like the, or whatnot, that really puts into jeopardy the simulation argument, which talks, which basically states that if you can map every neuron in the brain, you can replicate consciousness. That's like step number one for achieving a simulation or recreating a simulation. So if our way of thinking about it, if our mechanism for thinking about it is, is uh, wrong and has nothing to do with the spatial relation of neurons, or maybe we're missing something totally, then that really puts that argument into to jeopardy. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think? Do you think that? No, I, I, I think, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, I always think of uh, consciousness as like this big elephant in the room that we really have no explanation for. And, you know, it's, it's always puzzling to me that we don't spend more time. Like, in other words, I think of like the things that we like think about that we get upset about, like, you know, things that we don't understand or, you know, things that bother us or that frustrate us. And I think it, to me, it's always uh, alarming that we aren't more like in shock or, you know, terrified that there's this thing that is ubiquitous throughout the world, you know, 7 billion people, you know, presumably they're all conscious. I mean, I don't want to go down the, you know, yeah. rabbit hole well, of, some are probably robots, but right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, but, um, it's, 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 it's this big elephant in the room where it's, you know, why don't, like, I've never been in, 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 a, in a public transit or anything where someone just freaks out and says, like, where does consciousness come from? Like, that never happens. And I'm always kind of, like, surprised that it doesn't. Um, I think we have, in some ways, because it is so commonplace, um, we just don't think about it. I think it's, it's, it's similar to the way that people existed side by side with the notion of gravity for you know hundreds of thousands of years and really had no idea where it came from even newton when he had an equation for it he didn't he didn't know where it came from he's like look this is 
you know, this equation will tell you how strong the force is, but I don't know where it comes from. I don't understand how things act at a distance. Um, I think, I think consciousness is, is that same level where there's a a fundamental phenomena occurring that is ubiquitous that we all experience and that nobody can explain and that we're not bothered by that. And, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's, I mean, again, it maps very well onto the idea of that we live in a world, you know, we lived in a, in a gravity well for our entire existence and, um, nobody seemed bothered by it. Nobody seemed it's like, Hey, if I jump, I come back down. I'm not, there's no string atti- attached to me. There's no, you know, spring attached to me. And yet I, I'm not really? flying around. Um, I think, I think that's a very good point. Um, I think I don't like uh, getting too grandiose on this show. I, I like, we, I think we typically keep things a little more, you know, localized to like a book or a text or something, but and I was thinking a lot this past few weeks about, um, I think the great challenge we have for our generation, if you will, um, will be coming up with a robust defense of humanity that I really think we are not spending enough time actually thinking about what it means to be people. Uh, and I think that lack of a good answer to that question and not spending enough time asking it um, carries with it all sorts of problems. I look at authors like David Deutsch. I look at authors like Karl Popper. I look at authors in that realm who essentially link in a very important and a very impressive way fundamental human activities like science and discovery, conjecture, criticism with a notion of humanity itself, that these things are what make society. These things are what make us people. And um, I think I think it's it's the beginning of a really good answer to that question. And that I think if we spent more time talking about uh, would alleviate, you know, some of the pressure that I see that I, I think comes from people not really knowing what people are um, and people being worried about being reduced in all sorts of funny ways. Um, do, do, uh, do you see that? Do you see that pressure in people often? I think, I think where, where I see it most is in, discussions about society writ large where it's you know what what are people going to do when we don't have jobs what are people going to do when we don't have xyz it's like well why would people be any different i mean are we, will we still have brains will we still have minds i think we'll still have both of these things um so i think i think uh, and, and and also i i think people want to feel important and i think people want to feel special I think that those are healthy instincts. Authors like David Deutsch give real answers to that desire, I think, that it is important to be a person, that that is different than just being a collection of carbon atoms. You know, we're not just a lump of coal with some water. We're different. We're people. And we have all those traits that are discussed beautifully in the beginning of infinity. So I think focusing on those uh, aspects of what, make a, of what makes a person a person, why are people not animals, for example, um, I think is important. Um, and, um, I would like to see that more robustly discussed in, you know, I think all of us after a few drinks find ourselves in kind of the armchair sociologist role. Right. And, uh, which I think is again, another healthy instinct, but I would like to see more of this discussion about an open society being brought into those conversations. That's what I would like to see. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because 
like you said, people do like to feel important, but there's a couple of approaches you can take once you get to that point. Like one way is to like find out why we're important and to go looking for that answer. And the other way is to look at why you feel the need to feel important. If you could eliminate that desire, that might be a lot more feasible of an approach than trying to find an answer to a, I don't know, potentially unanswerable question, right? Well, I don't know that it's unanswerable because I think I think you I think you can at least start with what makes people different than other things. The idea of being a universal constructor that we can generate ideas that didn't exist before and then put those put those ideas into practice and you know transform the world around us. I mean, I to me I to me that's enough. I guess for, for if other people, if the desire goes deeper than that, you know, I see what you're saying, but I think, I think that is enough. And I think it should be enough because there's a, there, you know, the argument that David lays out that I think is convincing is that, you know, the, I think the argument is that like all, all persons are the same in that regard, that like, even if there were another species of intelligent beings on another planet, if they were doing what we were doing, if they were able to think and conjecture new ideas and put them into practice, that they, we, we would share that category. Um, and that that category is uniquely different than other, other living things. And certainly different than other, you know, non, not animate matter, you know, looking a lump of coal or something. Um, so I think it answers a question as to like, what, what, what makes life important. I think it also answers the question of what makes people important, or at least what makes them different. You can put the value on it however you want to, but, it at least gives you a way of, yeah. of distinguishing between things, which I, which I do think is important. Um, because again, I, I think it's silly to think of people as just being another animal. I mean, I don't know how anybody can really think that in a serious way. Um, Why not? Well, because again, our dogs, our, our lizards or whatever are living the exact same way they've been living forever. People are not, people change, we're dynamic. We can think of new things and put those things into practice. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a distinguishing feature of what it means to be a person that no other animal has. And, um, but does, that, does it have more intrinsic value, that particular case? Oh, again, I don't know that you need to put a value on it, but I, I think it's worth making the distinction. For me, that's enough. I don't, I don't need to know that I'm you know, better or worse, but different is something that you can observe. And I think in sure. this case, the difference is obvious. Yeah, yeah, I could agree with that. I mean, I think that um, you could also say that birds have a certain advantage and that they can fly. Like, that would be a pretty... But, pretty but, but we can fly, too. We can fly, too. We can invent jetpacks and airplanes and helicopters. And, but and, we you, can, and we can also go into space. They can't go into space. Do birds have a on a trench, you know? Like, our, like one, one human being in one lifetime could go to the moon... And then hypothetically come back to earth and go down to the bottom of the ocean. No, wait, no, wait, no other animal could do that. I didn't sure, but, but do other animals have like the faculty of sadness and anxiety and depression and whatnot? Well, like, it's they, not yeah. all just fun and games being, being thinkers. And- no, not, no, not at all. It, it, it's a tremendous weight. Um, again, I mean, one's reminded of the uh, Peter Parker, you know, responsibility and power go hand in hand. I, I think that that's true for people. I think our, our capacity to imagine things, is, is absolutely a source of misery for a lot of people. I mean, yeah. we can imagine how bad things have been. I mean, it's not fun here in Austria right now. It's, 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 it's not fun looking at World War II. I mean, that was a horrible human event brought on well, by people against other people, right? True. 
I so, mean, it's not, it's not fun from that sense. It's fun just learning about history and like... No, right, of course. There is a there is a grandeur to and I would even say that there is a there's a grandeur to World War II. Last episode, Joe Matz and I were talking about saving Private Ryan. Like D-Day really happened. Like that, like right. people really are we're gonna land all these people, like we're gonna put all of our chips on the table, roll the dice in a big way, and this is you know, make or break for you know the free world, basically. You know, there are there are exciting moments, but again, I think all that's brought about by being people too. Um, because in World War II, you really had a battle between a good guy and a bad guy. I mean, I think you really could be that simple with it. Uh, whereas if you're looking at two warring, you know, say you, you come across, you know, a nature documentary on, um, what was it, like Planet Earth or something, where you see like, you know, two tribes of lions fighting each other, you really wouldn't assign one tribe of lions, you know, good versus bad or something. It would just be fighting each other. It would all be about protein at that point. Um, whereas I, I think I think human conflict oftentimes, or at least can, uh, have a different dimension to it. So so I, I agree with you that it can be exciting, but also at the same time, it can be depressing. I mean, again, I don't, like no one's walking around Auschwitz going like, oh, oh interesting history fact here. Uh, oh, horrible. Yeah. This is where the bodies were. Oh, this is where the no. It's 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 horrible. It's 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 you know. I, when I was younger, I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C. It's not exciting, not interesting. It's it's horrible. Like even as a kid, the weight. It's like my God. They have all the all the shoes and like a big bin or something. It's like, but yeah. um, but again, it, it's 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 the uh, challenge i guess of being a person but i i wouldn't want to be an animal i would rather risk having a life you know a, a sad human life than the kind of ignorance is bliss animal life that would be my take maybe i'm mm-hmm. alone in that but i think that that's an easy choice to make well i i agree i agree with that um but i think there's there's some merit in being ambitious towards almost achieving this no mind this no mind state or like more of like the oneness with nature you know like the, the birds, if you look at the birds or the animals, like the birds and the look bees. at a dog, dude, a dog's always happy, right? Like how often do you see your dog sad? No, I know. I mean, only when I walk out of the room. No. That's achievable yeah. by humans. And, and I, the more you think, the sadder you are, I would say. Well, that was always the joke that Adam Kroll and Dr. Drew would make that, uh, you know, alcoholics were like smarter or something. But that was like, you would see that they tended to be smarter because like they, they realized how, horrible the world was and they would you know become depressed to me i i don't buy that um i i think that to be a human being in possession of a mind is is a source i i am convinced of david Deutsch's argument for optimism that's what i would say i am convinced that problems are inevitable but that they're also solvable and that because we have minds that we can conceive of new things we can solve problems as they as they occur or rather when they occur hopefully sometimes even beforehand but that's an that's another topic i think I think that should be a source of optimism. I, I, I don't think that a source of human happiness in the long term or inevitably will be uh, people thinking less because then you're doomed to a static society and then you're doomed to whatever problem that static society is incapable of solving. Again, we go back right. to Easter Island. Right, they, right. They were in that boat. They were as much people as you or me. They were as much capable of thought as you were me um but they they did not make it they were static and you know i don't think that that worked out well for them 
Yeah, well, I know we got to get to the music review, but let, let me let me try framing it just a little bit differently. Sure. Um, thinking back to like any time you have like a problem that you're trying to solve or like any time that you're trying to be creative, mm-hmm. uh, it's very difficult to force creativity. Sure. It seems like a lot of the a lot of the greatest like breakthroughs that you have with problems you're struggling with or, or just any breakthroughs whatsoever that you have personally um, seem to come like at the weirdest times, like. Or you'll hear about people talk about like when they're in the bathtub and they have like an aha moment or we were talking about Isaac Newton, right? Like the apple hit him in the head and then he figured it out. I know that literally didn't happen, but I don't know. Oh, really? Something like that. Well, I'm kind of bummed by that. I know she hadn't told me that. <laughs> but it seems like the more you just run the monkey mind part of your brain over and over and grind it on a certain stone on a certain mm-hmm. topic, like the less productive your thoughts on it are, the less creativity you have. Like the harder you try, the less productivity that you get. But I don't know. Yeah, closing thoughts on that before we move over I to think, our eight part music review. Yeah, I, I think whatever the source of creativity is, if it's you know in the shower or the or the you know the the fruit hitting you in the head, I think the bigger point is that we create a society that we're, where creativity is valued. Uh, whatever the source is that we value it and that we recognize the value of a dynamic open society. And, uh, you know, certainly I agree. You're not going to make, you know, if you're stuck on a problem, it may, maybe it makes sense to go for a walk. Uh, Nassim Taleb was a big fan of going on walks. I think all that's fine. I would say my, my yeah. point isn't to argue over the best source of creativity, uh, but rather it's value innately in that um, you want to live in a world and you want to be a person who recognizes uh, value in creativity, however, however it comes about. Um, and yes, and on that regard, yes, we can go on to the to the movie review uh, from our official movie correspondent. Uh, did you want me to read that one, or how did you want to do that one? Uh, yeah, go ahead. You got it. Okay. Up. All right. Very good. Let me pull it up real quick. Oh, I think this might be Jimmy's first uh, oration <laughs> that he didn't uh, write. Okay, let's see if I can pull this up. I don't know if my computer will allow me to. Am I still on the screen? Am I still recording? You're still there. All right, still hopefully I'm not recording the whole screen. This is not a big deal if I am. Okay. Yeah, we don't want to see that search history, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of creativity. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is from our, our movie review for this week. Um, actually, very fitting for what we were just talking about. The movie is called Nine Days. It is currently in theaters. The film is about a man in the afterlife who must conduct a series of interviews with unborn souls to decide which one of them is best suited for the opportunity of life. Is it good? It's fantastic. Edson Oda's debut feature is a profound meditation on life that deservedly won the Screenwriting Award at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival and was nominated for the Best First Feature at the Indie Spirit Awards. Oda's uncle died of suicide at the age of 50 when Oda was only 12, and he felt it had become the thing that defined his uncle in so many people's minds. Nine Days is in part Oda's attempt to reconnect with his uncle, to appreciate what he went through, and celebrate the other facets of his life. The personal nature of the film can be felt throughout, and Oda deftly balances the importance of celebrating the beauty of life while still recognizing its potential for brutality. There is one minor reveal late in the movie that borders on eye-rolling, but he otherwise steers away from the saccharine, 
for more earned moments of emotional catharsis. The film opens with a captivating minutes long segment following a woman named Amanda from adolescence through adulthood via what looks like home movie footage, save that it's shot entirely from her point of view with our only glimpsing her face via the reflection of a pane window. We then pull back to reveal a man named Will who's watching her life unfold along with, other, with over a dozen others on TV screens while he jots down notes. The untimely death of Amanda, a violin prodigy who was Will's favorite subject, creates an opening that Will must now fill even as he grapples with her death. One of the film's clearest conceits is it's using music that we saw Amanda perform to score the rest of the film, giving it an added resonance throughout. It's also just an all-around incredible score from Brazilian composer Antonio Pinto. It's to both Oda and Pinto's immense credit that two of the film's three standout scenes are almost entirely dialogue-free, using the fusion of visuals and sound to create moments almost overwhelming in their beauty and emotional resonance. Oda makes sure to give Will, Kayo, an unborn soul assisting him in the selection, and the five other souls who, who make it past Will's opening selection, distinct personalities, and the cast provides them with further life. Winston Duke, best known for supporting roles in Black Panther and Us, is a revelation here as Will. It's a deeply sensitive and powerful portrayal, allowing for Will's pain, anger, and caring to all shine through that's among the best this young decade has to offer. Benedict Wong, another actor most recognizable for his MCU role, Wong in Doctor Strange and in The Last Two Avengers, is great as Will's warm-hearted assistant earning the film's other spirit nomination. The actors who play the five souls we spend time with all do strong work, but it's Bill Skarsgård, who played Pennywise from It, and Zazie Beats of FX's Atlanta who stand out. Skarsgård's Kane. Is, most is the most cynical of the souls, aware of the darker parts of life, and looks to provide Will with the answers he wants to hear. So it's to his credit that Kane is less someone we root for than grudgingly respect. Beats has a difficult role as Emma, a soul that from the moment she is introduced is clearly there to challenge Will's worldview and advocate for an open-hearted embrace of life. Having the wrong actor in that part could, not, could make not only the character, but the whole film feel grating. But Beats does, doesn't ever oversell Emma's optimism, preventing both the character and the film from, com from coming off as naive. For all my love of the film, the concept itself may be too much for some to embrace. A lot is left unexplained about how Will found himself in, his, in this job, where the souls come from, or where they go when not visiting Will's house, which sits by itself in what appears to be a vast desert. Or... What higher power or powers are ultimately running all things? To that, I say the two most common theories for our own existence are that we are either the creation of an all-powerful deity who exists outside the realms of time and space, or that the entire universe sprung from nothing. If you're willing to accept either of these as satisfying answers, I don't think this film should be too much of a leap. Nine Days is not only an exciting debut film that announces Edson Odza Oda as a filmmaker to watch, or Winston Duke as a leading man of immense potential, but the best film I've seen this year. It's transcendent. Grade A. Other films to watch.
For another life-affirming film about the gift of inhabiting a body here on Earth, check out Pixar's Soul. For another movie about proving you deserve to move on to another plane of existence, watch Albert Brooks' Defending Your Life. There we have it. Another, another great review from, from, our, from Joe Mass, our R&R film correspondent. Um, I know what I'm doing this weekend. Yeah, yeah that, that, that looks like a good movie. I'm, I'm excited to watch that one as well. Um, geez, Joe, anything else we wanted to cover today? I think we covered everything. Uh, the paper. We'll see if we can post that. I, I, it's, it's worth checking out. You know, again, the author argues, you know, there is no innocent eye. There is no innocent algorithm. Everything we do is theory-laden. All observations are theory-laden. Again, I think that that's an important part, um, an important part of, you know, thinking about being in an open society. Nice to see David Deutsch's uh, ideas moving out into the, uh, into the ether, as it were. And um, hopefully we'll see, we'll come across more of these. Um, if anybody who's listening to this has any other ideas for papers that cross that realm, let us know. We'd be happy to talk about them on the, uh, on the podcast. Um, Joe, anything else before we close out? Uh, no, I think we've, we, we've hit every base that we needed to hit today. I think so. I think this is a quintessential episode. Quintessential episode. Good to be back on track somewhat. Again, we'll be, we'll be even more back on track next week. I'll be back in my home base. Um, and uh, you know we'll have something prepared um, next weekend. We'll be we'll be on. Still haven't missed a weekend though, Joe. Still going strong. Forty six, looking good. Keep the streak alive. Keep the streak alive. So uh, if we, if, for anybody who likes this, be sure to follow us. Um, let's see our website www.rosesandrhetoric.com. Our Twitter uh, at roses underscore rhetoric. Instagram also at roses underscore rhetoric and of course follow joe as well at jose four underscores cuervo that'll get you his twitter and instagram and uh, be sure to check out our youtube channel as well just search roses and rhetoric we will pop right up until next time i am jimmy hackett signing off for joseph stanford saying ciao